This episode contains pretty much all of the things I would warn you about, including child abuse and sexual exploitation. Listener discretion is advised. On December 16th, 2004, a woman pulled up outside Bobby Joe Stinnett's house in Skidmore, Missouri. The pretense was to look at some puppies Bobby Joe had for sale. But when the woman left, Bobby Joe was dead. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the first episode of the new year. I hope everyone had a chance to listen to my question and answer episode from last week. Just to give you a little bit of insight into how the show is made and what we're going to do with it going forward. Long story short, it's going to be much of the same. I'm going to make podcast episodes and you're going to listen to them. And we will connect on my Thursday night live streams, as well as on social media. So we'll just keep going the way we have. I do want to thank Haley and Jess for their assistance on this episode. Last week, we talked about the murder of Wendy Gillenwater and the disappearance of Branson Perry. Today, we're going to stay with that same family for yet another tragedy. And not only are we back with the same family, we are back in Skidmore, Missouri. This is the same town we talked about last week being made famous when the residents stood up to the town bully. Skidmore is where Bobby Joe Potter was raised, and she graduated high school in 2000 and went right into the workforce working at Kawasaki Motors Manufacturing. But Bobby Joe's real passion was her home business where she bred rat terriers. She called the company Happy Haven Rat Terriers and did her best to make that name, Happy Haven, a reality. Bobby Joe really loved what she did. She was upbeat and friendly, though some people say she could be a little shy when she first met someone. But she made a lot of friends in the dog breeding community, and she participated in online forums for people who like rat terriers and breeders. She would also regularly update her website with pictures of her happy and well-cared-for puppies. In April 2003, Bobby Joe married Zeb Stinnett, the cousin of the two victims we talked about last week. In the spring of 2004, they found out they were expecting their first child together, and they were thrilled. They went out and bought one of those Doppler monitors to use at home so they could hear the heartbeat whenever they wanted, and Bobby Joe spent her time organizing all those plastic tubs full of all the little clothes that they had been gifted and they had purchased. And I remember doing this with my first baby waiting on his arrival. And like a lot of us who have had babies in the internet age, Bobby Jo shared her pregnancy ups and downs online. Even her business website would have little snippets and updates on her pregnancy journey. On December 15th, 2004, Bobby Jo was eight months pregnant, and she had recently celebrated her 23rd birthday. A woman named Darlene Fisher reached out to Bobby Joe on one of the dog forums she was on. Darlene said she lived about 25 minutes away in Fairfax, Missouri, and she was looking to purchase a rat terrier puppy. She asked Bobby Joe if she could come out to the house to see the dogs that Bobby Joe had available. Bobby Joe said it would be fine, and she was available to meet her the very next day which was Thursday, December 16th. And so she sent Darlene her address. The next morning, Bobby Joe's husband, Zeb, left for work while she got ready for Darlene's visit. Darlene arrived at some point around 12.30 in the afternoon. 
around 2.30, Bobby Joe's mom, Becky, called the house and she talked to Bobby Joe. Becky didn't work that far away, but she wanted to know if Bobby Joe could pick her up when she got off her shift. And Bobby Joe said she'd be there. But then when Bobby Joe didn't show up to pick up Becky by 3.30, Becky headed off on foot towards Bobby Joe's house. It was around a two-block walk, so it didn't take her that long to get there. When Becky arrived, the front door was open, so she let herself in, calling for Bobby Joe and getting no answer. Becky walked through the house and into the dining room where she found Bobby Joe lying in a pool of blood. The 911 call was placed around 3.40, and Becky was begging them to send help for her daughter quickly. She said Bobby Joe was eight months pregnant, and it looked like her stomach had exploded. When the first responders arrived, they found Bobby Joe dead and the baby cut out of her. They also noticed long blonde hair clutched in Bobby Joe's hand, and they believed it was from Bobby Joe fighting back against a female attacker. As this was very apparently a rare fetal abduction, and time was everything in getting the baby recovered safely, the Nottoway County Sheriff's Department called in the FBI for assistance right away. And that was the right move because Nottoway County doesn't often see stranger murders at all, let alone a fetal abduction. An Amber Alert was issued for the baby girl right away, and critical information was gathered from witnesses. Though no one saw an attack, one neighbor did see an unfamiliar car in the driveway that day. It was a dirty, pinkish-red two-door Honda, and it was parked in the driveway from 1230 until at least 2.30. That's when the neighbor left their house and didn't see the car when they came back. The police had this description of the car that was likely driven by the murderer, but there was an issue with geography here that made it tricky getting the word out. Skidmore is in the northwest corner of Missouri, and in 45 minutes, you can be in Nebraska or Kansas, and it's only about 20 minutes to Iowa. Or the car could still be in Missouri. So at least four states had to be alerted and told to watch for the car. Another lead was, of course, the woman coming by to see the dogs. The morning after the murder, a woman named Diane called the police to give them more information on this woman. Diane was active on one of the message boards that Bobby Joe posted on, and she had heard about her murder. Diane said she saw messages in the Breeders' chat board between Bobby Joe and two users in particular. So the police looked at the forum and found the email addresses linked to each of the users Diane had identified. One of these usernames came back as linked to a male, and the other was linked to this Darlene Fisher. The account linked to Darlene showed private messages to and from Bobby Joe on the 15th, arranging that meeting on the morning of the 16th. And on the evening of the 15th, Darlene even made a post out on the public board saying that she was looking forward to meeting Bobby Joe. So now the task was to track down Darlene, which, in case you haven't guessed, was a fake name. But they were able to trace her IP address, and that brought them to a dial-up account which, if you remember back in the olden days, dial-up accounts used your phone line. So every dial-up internet account was linked to a phone number. They then could trace the phone number, and they found it registered to a man named Kevin Montgomery in Melbourne, Kansas, which is a teeny tiny town 
about 45 minutes south of Topeka, and it's a little under three hours from Skidmore. The authorities wasted no time getting out to Malvern. This was their best lead, and it came less than 18 hours after the murder and kidnapping. And when the investigators got to Kevin's house, they saw a car in the driveway that matched the description of the car seen by Bobby Joe's neighbor. They knocked on the door, and a man named Kevin Montgomery let them in. Once inside, they saw Kevin's 36-year-old wife, Lisa Montgomery, holding a newborn baby girl. The police immediately told Lisa and Kevin why they were there. They were investigating the murder of a pregnant woman and the abduction of her child. Lisa told them that the baby she was holding was her baby, and she had just given birth the day before at the Birth and Women's Center in Topeka. This center is now closed, but it was a freestanding birth center staffed by midwives that allowed you to have that almost-like-home-birth experience. The key to choosing this location as to where Lisa sang she gave birth was that these birth centers generally discharged people quickly, typically around six hours postpartum. You didn't stay for a few days like you typically do at a hospital. Anyway, Lisa said she was in Topeka Christmas shopping the day before when she suddenly went into labor. This was not her first baby, so things moved very quickly, but she made it to the birth center in time to have the baby there. She called Kevin from Topeka after she was discharged, and he drove up there to pick her and the baby up taking Lisa's teenage kids with him so they could then drive her car back to Melvern. Lisa and Kevin named the little girl Abigail, and they spent the evening calling and telling everyone about the new baby. The police then asked Lisa for some proof of the baby being hers, even just discharge papers from the birthing center. Just one little shred of evidence, and they'd be on their way. Lisa told Kevin to go out to the truck to get the papers because she left them in there, which he did, but then he came back in saying he couldn't find them in the truck. Even without the papers, the police were thinking this is easy enough to confirm independently, so one of them stepped outside and called the birth center. Not only did Lisa not give birth there on the 16th, no one did. They had zero births at the birth center that day. This pretty much confirms what the police were thinking, so they asked Lisa to step outside so they could talk. They managed to get her to let an officer hold the baby, which was an important step. They believed this baby was Bobby Joe's, and Lisa brutally murdered Bobby Joe to get that baby. Who knows what she would do when confronted? So thankfully, the baby was safely in someone else's arms. And with the baby safe, they told Lisa that there was no proof to back up her story. Lisa then admitted that she lied about going to the birth center to have the baby. She said that they couldn't afford the cost of a medically-assisted birth, so she went unassisted, except for the help of two friends, but she didn't tell Kevin that. Well, okay, perfect. Now the police can call these two friends and ask them about the birth, two witnesses. But of course, it's not that simple. The friends actually didn't come over. Lisa just had them available to call them if she needed them. So Lisa was now saying that she had a completely unassisted birth alone on her kitchen floor. After the placenta was delivered, she said she threw it into a creek and then drove up to Topeka to then call Kevin to pick her up. 
she did this whole thing to make Kevin think that she actually did use the birth center. Obviously, they didn't believe this story. It doesn't make any sense. It simply didn't happen. And when that fact was apparent to Lisa, she then asked if they could go to the sheriff's office to talk rather than doing this in front of her house. Whether she didn't want the neighbors or Kevin or her older children to know what's going on, who knows. But once she got to the sheriff's office, Lisa broke down and she gave a full confession. Meanwhile, the baby was rushed to the hospital to be checked out, where doctors and nurses were surprised to find she was doing perfectly fine in spite of being born early and so traumatically. So let's go over what Lisa said happened, starting with how she even knew who Bobby Joe was. Lisa had rat terriers, so the two posted on the same rat terrier and dog forums online. They met in person in April 2004 at a rat terrier show in Kansas. Bobby Joe was on the shy side, but she did really engage when she was talking about dogs. There is at least one picture, group picture out there, where Bobby Joe and someone who looks like Lisa are in the picture together. After the dog show, the two were still on the same forums together, and there was actually a little dust-up between Lisa and another breeder named Nancy. Nancy said that she didn't believe Lisa about the pedigree of Lisa's dogs. And she said that right out there on the forum. Bobby Joe intervened and tried to smooth things over, saying that it was probably just a misunderstanding and that Lisa hadn't purposely lied about her dogs. So even though they only met briefly in person and in a group environment, they did have interactions online. Lisa followed Bobby Joe's website as well as her posts on the dog forums. She saw when Bobby Joe officially announced her pregnancy. And at the same time, Lisa told her husband Kevin and everyone else that she was pregnant. Bobby Joe was due in January, and Lisa said she was due in December. This wasn't Lisa's first pregnancy. It wasn't even her first fake pregnancy. She had been pregnant four times for real and multiple times not for real. So let's back up and talk about Lisa's family a little bit. So in 1986, at the age of 18, Lisa married a man named Carl Bowman, who was actually her 25-year-old stepbrother. They had not been raised together. Their parents had only been together for a few years at the point Lisa and Carl got married. From 1987 to 1990, they had four children together. When Lisa had their fourth child in three years, the baby was born around 32 weeks. Lisa's doctor discouraged her from having any more children. Whatever reason baby number four was premature was something that was likely to reoccur because she was specifically counseled that future pregnancies may not make it to term. Lisa opted at this point to have a tubal ligation, though she said it wasn't what she wanted. She felt pressure, maybe even coercion, from Carl and also her own mother, which we'll get into her mother later. So here she is, many years later, divorced from Carl and now married to Kevin, and miraculously pregnant in spite of her tubal ligation. And like I said, not even for the first time. Kevin, her new husband, had been told by Lisa's family members that Lisa had her tubes tied, but he didn't actually know what that meant. And as far as he knew, 
Lisa had gotten pregnant by him twice before this time. In 2000, Lisa came to him and told him that she was pregnant but wanted to terminate. So he gave her $40 so she could go get an abortion. She never mentioned the pregnancy again, so he assumed that this is what she did. Two years later, in 2002, Lisa said she was pregnant again. She supposedly went to doctor's appointments, but the one time Kevin arranged to go with her to one, Lisa made an excuse to cancel the appointment. Eventually, what would have been her due date came and went, so Kevin asked Lisa when she thought the baby would be born. Lisa told him that the baby had been born, a stillborn, and she donated the body to science. She even showed him a letter from a research center indicating this, a letter that she had forged. Kevin accepted this explanation, which leaves me with a lot of questions. How do you just accept that your wife had a stillbirth without telling you? You wouldn't have seen any signs of her being postpartum or of mourning. I just don't understand how Lisa's explanation didn't spark a million more questions. Kevin is either the least curious person I've come across or maybe just way, way too trusting. So a termination in 2000, infant loss in 2002, and now Lisa was pregnant again in 2004. But it wasn't only these three fake pregnancies. Lisa's first husband, Carl, claimed she told him twice that she was pregnant after her tubal, and he knew she was lying. During a 1994 separation, Lisa was seeing someone else, and she told him and others that she was pregnant with that man's baby. But when she reconciled with Carl, the story of this pregnancy just went away like it never happened. Though Carl and Lisa had reconciled at this point, it did not last, and the two divorced in 1998. So in 2004, when Lisa's wearing maternity clothes and claiming to be pregnant again, Carl did not believe her based on her past lies. Not only that, Carl and his new wife told Lisa that they were going to expose her in court over this fake pregnancy and use it against her, as Carl was seeking full custody of the kids. Lisa told Carl she was going to prove him wrong when she had the baby. On December 10th, less than a week before Bobby Joe's murder, Carl filed a motion to have the kids move in with him. And Carl wasn't the only one who doubted Lisa's pregnancy. People who knew she had a tubal side-eyed her. People who remembered other times she claimed to be pregnant and no baby ever appeared. They doubted her. Even a minister made a comment about how tiny she looked, considering she was near term. But Lisa told him that she always carried small. So there were people who doubted Lisa's pregnancy, and she decided she was not going to do what she did last time and basically fake a stillbirth. Whether it's because she really wanted the baby or because she didn't want to lose custody when Carl exposed her? That's a question I don't know that we'll ever have an answer to. Maybe it was a little of both. I also have to wonder how far in advance Lisa planned this. Her fake due date was within a month of Bobby Joe's. So was this her plan all along or did it only come up after Carl threatened to expose her risking custody of her children. But regardless of when she planned it, killing Bobby Joe and kidnapping the baby was Lisa's plan when she contacted Bobby Joe under the fake name of Darlene Fisher and asked about buying one of the rat terriers. 
So there is no doubt that this crime was premeditated. Lisa did arrive at the house around 12.30, and it's not clear if Bobby Joe recognized her or not. Lisa does have a somewhat distinct look, but it's not like they really knew each other in person well. Another poster in the dog forums told the media that she imagined Lisa must have disguised herself in some way to trick Bobby Joe to let her in. Or maybe she had some excuse for using a fake name when she contacted her. Anyway, Lisa said she played with the puppies and acted like she was getting to know them. And she managed to extend this visit for a couple of hours until 2.30 when Bobby Joe answered the phone call from her mother. With that phone call, Lisa knew Bobby Joe was expected to be somewhere soon and people would come looking for her if she wasn't there. So she had to act then or not at all. Lisa took a cord she brought with her out of her pocket and wrapped it around Bobby Joe's neck. Bobby Joe fought back, but eventually lost consciousness. Once on the dining room floor, Lisa pulled out a big knife that she had also brought with her and began to cut Bobby Joe's abdomen. The pain from the incision brought Bobby Joe back to consciousness, so Lisa pulled on the cord that was still around Bobby Joe's neck, strangling her to death. She then quickly cut the baby out of Bobby Joe, cutting the umbilical cord and pinching it off as she walked the newborn to her car. Once she was far enough away from Bobby Joe's house, Lisa pulled over and started caring for the baby. She wiped her down, she put her in a car seat that she had brought along, and except for a cut above her eye, the baby was healthy and unharmed. Lisa then drove two hours to Topeka, where she pulled over and called Kevin. She told him the same fake birth center story that she initially told the police, and he drove to pick her up. Again, lack of curiosity here because Lisa had him meet her at the Long John Silver's parking lot across the street from the birth center, not at the birth center but somehow this did not strike him as odd. Lisa and Kevin brought the baby out the next morning where they went out to breakfast. They went and ran some errands. Kevin and Lisa and the baby went home, and they weren't there long before the police showed up. Kevin was also interviewed by the police this day, and they found his lack of curiosity quite interesting, yet earnest. Lisa wasn't a fan of doctors or hospitals, so he thought the birth center made sense. And he, honest to God, did not see anything weird about picking her up at a fast food fish place right after she had a baby. Like, the birth center just boots you out and tells you to be sure to cross at the light. That made sense to him. And yes, even though a family member told him Lisa had her tubes tied, he genuinely did not know what that meant, and he didn't ask. In Kevin's defense, his ex-wife has said he is a very trusting individual, too trusting. He accepted what people said to him at face value, and he was a target for manipulation. Kevin honestly thought Lisa was pregnant, and he never thought the baby wasn't theirs. He was not in on this with her, and he was cleared. While Kevin and Lisa were being interrogated, Zeb Stinnett, who was still reeling from what had happened, was told his daughter was safe, and he rushed to Topeka to meet his baby. He named her Victoria Joe and called her Tori Joe, which was a nickname Bobby Joe really loved and wanted for her. Zeb was able to bring her home after she was kept for the weekend under observation. When Bobby Joe's funeral was held the day after Tori Joe was released, the service was conducted by the same minister who had, just a year and a half before, married Bobby Joe and Zeb. 
People who knew Bobby Joe through dog breeding groups traveled in from other states. Even some who didn't know Bobby Joe heard her story and wanted to show the family that they had support behind them. Over 300 people attended Bobby Joe's funeral. That is basically the population of Skidmore. The day before the funeral, Lisa Montgomery made her first court appearance in what would be a long and rocky legal process. Kevin spoke to the media, expressing sadness for what happened. He said he hoped Bobby Joe's family were seeing support from the community and their church because his own community had really supported him in the aftermath. Well, I said Kevin was the least curious person, and it might sound like I'm dismissing him. I do want to acknowledge that he lost here as well. Though the baby he thought Lisa was having didn't exist, he thought she did. And he thought he held her and fed her and watched her sleep that one night she spent in his home. I am sure he struggled to heal from this. I know he did support Lisa going forward, fully believing that she was severely mentally ill. And that is going to be a huge part of the legal proceedings. So let's get into Lisa Montgomery because her past comes into play here. We're going to go back before her first marriage to her childhood. And this part is going to talk about sexual violence against children. It is going to talk about some of the worst things I've ever talked about on the show. I am going to leave a timestamp in the show notes that will tell you when I stop talking about this. So if you need to, just hit your fast forward button until you get to that point. Okay, so even if we throw out Lisa's own account of her childhood and say that whatever she says happened is self-serving, she's trying to get out from under a death penalty case, we can look at the legal record and the accounts of her siblings and other relatives to learn from outside sources how very bad it was. Lisa was born to her mother, Judy, who was an alcoholic who drank heavily while pregnant with her. Judy was physically and mentally abusive to her children, doing things like stripping them naked and pushing them outside as a punishment. According to Lisa's older half-sister, Judy would also allow her friends to rape her daughters. So go ahead and prepare yourself right now because you're about to tear your hair out because we're going to hit the part in the story where multiple people learn a child was being abused and did nothing to stop it. So Lisa's father had a daughter named Diane. That's her half-sister. She was from a previous relationship and he had custody of her. She suffered greatly at the hands of Judy, her stepmother, Lisa's mother. When Judy and Diane's father split, the dad just seems to drop out of the picture, and Diane was removed from Judy's custody by the state. She was, thankfully, placed in a loving foster home. What isn't clear at all is why child services removed one child but left the others in the home when they were all being subjected to abuse. A few years later, when Lisa was in middle school, her stepfather, Jack Kleiner, began sexually assaulting her. He threatened her to keep her quiet. Sometimes the threat was that he would kill her, and other times the threat was that he would turn to her younger sister and start raping her. Eventually, Lisa decided to tell a cousin who was also a deputy with the local sheriff's department. She told him not only of the rape by her stepfather, but also at the hands of other men who her mother and stepfather sold her to. They lived in a rundown trailer that Jack built a shed next to. That shed was Lisa's room. 
and that's where they would send men to rape her, either for cash or for services like plumbing or repairs on their vehicle or on their trailer. They were trafficking her. Lisa begged her cousin not to tell anyone because she was afraid Jack would kill her. The cousin didn't know what to do, so he told her that she really should go to the police. And I don't know that he realized that this is exactly what she was trying to do when she disclosed this to him, a sheriff's deputy. Then somewhere along the line, someone did report it, and a social worker investigated. And the social worker referred the case to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor's office did absolutely nothing. And then, when Judy decided to divorce Jack when Lisa was 15, Judy used the sexual abuse that she admittedly witnessed against Jack in the proceedings. While the family court said Judy's failure to protect Lisa was inexcusable, no report was made to Child Protective Services or the police. Judy literally testified in court that she watched her daughter be raped, and nothing happened. Lisa briefly went to a therapist at this point, likely so Judy looked better in the divorce proceedings. She and Jack at this point shared children who she wanted to keep custody of. The therapist actually noted that Judy had a lack of empathy for Lisa. At home, Lisa got the message that she was to blame for the failure of Judy's marriage. Around this time, Lisa began experiencing seizures, which would later be attributed to head trauma caused by prolonged physical abuse. Then at age 17, Lisa became engaged to her new stepbrother, Carl Bowman, who was in his mid-20s. Like I said, they hadn't grown up together. At this point, Judy was remarried to some other guy, and this was his son. Pretty much as soon as she turned 18, Lisa and Carl married, and Lisa alleges the abuse of her childhood was carried into her marriage with Carl, with Carl now being her abuser. As an adult, Lisa did show signs of mental illness prior to the murder. She told one of her siblings that when she was younger and these men were raping her, she would, quote, go away in her mind. That disassociation became Lisa's go-to way of coping with stress. It caused her serious issues as an adult. Her kids wouldn't be able to get her to snap out of what they called her trances, where she would just stare off into space. She got into multiple car accidents due to it. She had trouble holding down a job. When Lisa was given the Global Assessment of Functioning Test prior to trial, her score was a 48. A normal score is 80 to 100. And there were signs of this in her life. Lisa would simply not eat, and she would not prepare meals for her kids when she wasn't eating. She had head lice for years and never attempted to treat it. When she was arrested at the age of 36, it took Lisa a full month to learn how to make her bed in jail. Lisa was likely already predisposed to mental illness since it was prevalent on both sides of her family. And then once you add the chronic childhood abuse, it's really not a surprise to anyone that she was mentally ill, which isn't something the prosecution was necessarily disagreeing with. The question was, was she so mentally ill that she was not legally responsible for her crimes. So that is the background on Lisa. However, not a lot of the childhood abuse came in at trial. The prosecution dismissed it as the abuse excuse, 
and her defense team didn't get a lot of the information on the record when they were questioning witnesses, which was possibly a missed opportunity. It wasn't necessarily that the court was stopping them from bringing it up. They just didn't get into the scope of what Lisa Montgomery had gone through in life. The defense was much more focused on proving an insanity defense based on pseudosciasis. And evaluations by the defense doctors did diagnose Lisa with pseudosciasis, which we'll get to in a minute, depression, borderline personality disorder, and complex PTSD. So we discussed pseudosciasis in the De La Marvera case, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes I've done here on Crimelines, if you want to go back and listen to it if you missed it. But pseudosciasis is the false belief you are pregnant. It is associated with actual signs and symptoms of pregnancy, like abdominal enlargement, light or entirely missed periods, sensation of fetal movement, morning sickness, and even labor pains. One of the defense experts, Dr. McCandless, said that Lisa did experience these things. She was nauseous, she gained weight, and she reported that her periods had stopped. Now, the doctor for the prosecution, Dr. Park Dietz, who evaluated Lisa, agreed with most of the defense findings about Lisa's mental health, except the false pregnancy. To be diagnosed with pseudosciasis, Lisa had to believe that she was really and truly pregnant. And Dr. Dietz pointed out several signs that Lisa knew she was not pregnant. He said that in cases of pseudosciasis, the woman's story stays consistent. She shares her good pregnancy news everywhere, and she denies it 0% of the time because she sincerely believes she is pregnant. And this does not fit with Lisa. Lisa told a variety of stories. She told some people she was having twins and some that she had conceived twins but lost one. She told others there was just always one baby. She told different people different answers about the sex of the baby. And in spite of getting regular prenatal care with her four confirmed pregnancies, Lisa did not seek care during this pregnancy at all. She saw her doctor for other things and didn't tell him she was pregnant or have him run a pregnancy test. This indicates that she knew she wasn't pregnant. The one thing I find the most persuasive here is that Lisa had to fill out insurance paperwork in September 2004. She should have been about six or seven months pregnant at that time. Yet she said she was not pregnant on that form, showing that she knew she was not pregnant. Lisa also forged documents and even a sonogram to prove she was pregnant to the people who doubted her. That sounds like someone who knew they were faking it. Lisa wasn't, in Dr. Dietz's view, delusional. She knew she was lying. Killing Bobby Joe was a cover-up for the lie. The defense experts said that any of this faked document stuff and the lengths she went to were a desperate attempt to continue her delusion. And I think I would be more apt to buy that if Lisa went to the doctor even once in her pregnancy. Had she gone to the doctor believing she was pregnant and he told her she wasn't, then I could see her delusion being challenged in a way that would then make her go to great lengths to continue or prove her delusion. But Lisa never once appeared to act on the belief that she was carrying a child. It was all cover-ups from the start, from what I can tell. I'm not an expert on this, and the experts don't even agree, so I'll leave it up to you to decide what you think about this. 
The next development in the case was a few months prior to the trial when Lisa changed her story. And really, she had not much to do but think up stories because this case took nearly three years to go to trial. So it was early 2007 when Lisa said she actually wasn't alone when she went to Bobby Joe's house. Her brother Tommy, who was 10 years younger than her, had gone to Bobby's house with her and helped carry out the murder and kidnapping. The defense had Lisa polygraphed on two questions that had essentially the same meaning. The first was, on that day, was Tommy with you at the house? And the second was, was Tommy present in the house that day? Lisa answered yes to both, and no deception was detected. The prosecution was notified of the results, and they did not want this to be allowed in at trial. For one, they were not informed ahead of time and did not have a chance to participate or evaluate the methods, conditions, and questions. They argued these two questions were too vague anyway. No date was given to Lisa just that day, and no address was specified, just the house. Additionally, the prosecution took this information and investigated it, now that Tommy's name was being brought into it. And while it can be hard to verify an alibi two and a half years later, they were able to verify Tommy's alibi because he was meeting with his probation officer three hours away on the afternoon of the murder. There was a log entry verifying that Tommy showed up for this court-ordered meeting. After being told Tommy could not possibly have been with her that day, Lisa claimed she had amnesia from before and during the murder. Except Lisa had already told the police everything in detail, and her initial confession the day after the murder lined up with the evidence. Amnesia seemed unlikely, but I want it to be clear that Lisa's symptoms of severe mental illness continued while she was in prison, and she may have passed the polygraph because she did, in that moment, believe Tommy was with her when he wasn't. Lisa talked about feeling disconnected with reality in her day-to-day life. And when that would happen, she would stare at a tree and convince herself that the tree was real. After a while of staring at the tree and telling herself this tree is real, that would bring her back to reality. So Tommy having been there may have been a break from reality. Okay, so on October 4th, 2007, Lisa's trial finally began. Because she had taken the baby over state lines, this was a federal case, and it was tried in the federal court rather than in the Missouri state court. And the federal government was seeking the death penalty. Up until this point, the federal government had only put three women to death. The three were Mary Surratt, who was a conspirator in the Lincoln assassination, convicted spy Ethel Rosenberg, and kidnapper Bonnie Heady, who kidnapped Bobby Greenlease from his school in Kansas City. Bonnie Heady was the last woman the federal government put to death and she was executed in 1953. Lisa was on trial in 2007. Statistically speaking, it seemed Lisa would have a decent chance at either not getting sent to death row at all or not getting executed once there. Because Lisa was using a not guilty by reason of insanity defense, the defense was not contesting the facts of the case. So the case more involved a lot of medical and psychiatric testimony. Some of the testimony was from people who had seen Lisa in the past. 
Some were experts on the topic of child abuse, particularly severe child abuse and its effects. And some were those who interviewed Lisa and assessed her after her arrest. In federal court, the affirmative defense Lisa was using required her to prove that at the time of the murder and kidnapping, she was unable to appreciate the nature and quality or wrongfulness of her acts due to severe mental disease or defect. So having a mental illness, even a severe mental illness, was not the hurdle Lisa had to clear. They could easily prove she had a severe mental illness. Even the prosecution experts agreed about this. The defense had to prove that Lisa's mental illness interfered with her ability to assess that what she was doing was wrong. So the prosecution focused on picking apart the defense assertion that Lisa was delusional and that she believed she was actually pregnant. They noted how organized she was, how meticulously this was planned. Lisa had looked up home births and aftercare online, which would make sense if she believed she was pregnant. But then she also searched up how to perform a C-section. That wouldn't be knowledge she would need for herself if she truly believed she was pregnant. The prosecution said the motive here was to prove Lisa's ex-husband wrong when he told her he was going to use her fake pregnancy against her in their custody battle. She had a custody hearing in January, and she knew she needed to produce a baby by then or she would be exposed. Not only does this show a sane thought process, according to the prosecution, it showed premeditation. The defense did agree with the prosecution that the threat to expose Lisa in the custody battle was a trigger for the murder and abduction. However, not because Lisa was covering up for something, but rather because her delusion had been shattered. They presented experts who said that when someone is experiencing a delusion like pseudosciasis, challenges or threats to that delusion result in a dissociative state. They compared it to sleepwalking. Even though Lisa looked and acted alert and aware of what was going on, she really wasn't. Her changing stories didn't disprove the delusion but were actually fluctuations as she tried to cling to it. Basically, the psychology we already covered took up a lot of this trial testimony. I have to wonder if the defense would have had a better chance if they focused less on proving this delusion with pseudosciasis and just focused on her severe childhood abuse that caused her to be dissociative, and have these episodes with some frequency as an adult. She could have been in a dissociative state without linking it to a fake pregnancy, which is what the prosecution's expert very logically dismantled. The defense did link the childhood abuse with the pseudosciasis saying one caused the other, but the evidence really did not get to the depths of what actually happened to Lisa in her home. She and her siblings were just straight up tortured by their mother and by the men she allowed into their home. Lisa is not the only one of her siblings to have suffered the aftermath of this trauma, to have it evident in their life as an adult. She's not even the only one to end up in prison but she certainly is the only one who did something this heinous. Now, the question for the jury was, did the abuse make Lisa so mentally ill that she was delusional at the time of Bobby Joe Stinnett's murder and Tori Joe's kidnapping? The prosecution said no. The defense said yes. And after four hours of deliberation, the jury sided with the prosecution and Lisa was found guilty. After Lisa was found guilty, we enter the sentencing phase, where she was looking at life in prison 
or a death sentence. And this is where aggravating factors and mitigating factors are presented to the jury. The prosecution acknowledged the abuse that Lisa suffered, but they said it wasn't enough of a mitigating factor to overcome how absolutely horrific this murder was. They believed that Lisa was exaggerating her mental illness for the sake of sympathy from the jury. They presented the statistics. The truth is, the vast majority of people who were abused as children do not go on to kill anyone. So Lisa was, in their view, using this as an excuse. The jury deliberated for five hours and decided to sentence Lisa Montgomery to death. And for over a decade, that was about it. Lisa appealed, but everything was denied. But the federal government was particularly unmotivated to carry out executions. From 1988 until 2018, only three federal prisoners were executed. Then, in February 2019, Bill Barr was appointed as the U.S. Attorney General by Donald Trump. Barr is famously a hard-line, tough-on-crime attorney, and Donald Trump is the same as a politician. These are facts, not my political opinion. As we will see in this case, politicians often control our justice system, so I have to give you this political context to understand what is happening right now and why it is happening right now. So within six months of tough-on-crime Bill Barr coming in, it was announced that the Justice Department was going to start scheduling federal executions again. And since then, 10 prisoners have been put to death. It was supposed to be 11. In October 2020, it was announced that Lisa Montgomery and Brandon Bernard would be the next two prisoners to be executed, with Lisa's scheduled for December 8th and Brandon Bernard for December 10th. Brandon's execution has been carried out, but Lisa got a delay. Two weeks before her scheduled execution, her attorneys contracted COVID-19, and they would be unavailable for the last-minute petition for clemency and all the last-minute work that is done in these death penalty cases. So a judge granted them more time by staying the execution. The Justice Department quickly rescheduled it for January 12, 2021. This date is important because it is eight days before Joe Biden will be inaugurated as president. Joe Biden is anti-death penalty, and there is a chance he will halt federal executions immediately when he takes office. If Lisa's legal team can keep her out of the death chamber until Biden takes office, they have a chance to keep her alive until her natural death. Bill Barr tendered his resignation as attorney general shortly before Christmas 2020, but that doesn't really change the execution going forward since the Justice Department will still move forward with it. Then on December 24, 2020, a court vacated the execution date due to, from my understanding, a procedural error. Then on January 1, 2021, an appellate court reversed the lower court's ruling, meaning the date was no longer vacated and it's back on. However, the court is allowing Lisa's attorneys to ask for a hearing before the full court, which the attorneys have said they plan to do. By the time you are listening to this, all of that will have already been filed. Whatever the outcome of that hearing will likely be appealed by whichever side loses. Now, the only court higher at this point is the Supreme Court who can decide whether or not to hear the case. 
Lisa's attorneys had also included other issues with this rescheduled date, challenging it, and those also have to be resolved as well. So this is a case that when I put it on my calendar to cover was just kind of sitting there. And then starting in October, everything picked up steam and it is now still a developing case. I have rewritten this procedural part twice already. And I know I may have to record an update before I release this. Lisa's attorneys are working hard to get her execution delayed or to get President Trump to commute her sentence to life in prison. They are not asking that Lisa be freed. They are not asking for her conviction to be overturned. They're not saying she isn't culpable or shouldn't have been found guilty. The point they're making here is that the abuse Lisa endured and her severe mental illness should be enough mitigating factors to say life in prison is enough of a punishment for her. Because something that has become clear in the 13 years since Lisa's trial is that she wasn't faking her mental illness. She wasn't exaggerating it for the jury. As she has aged, being in the prison system, she has declined. She has since been diagnosed with bipolar disorder with psychotic features, among other things. She takes heavy doses of psychiatric medications just to function day to day, and she is not always completely rooted in reality. Her mental illness is considered severe. When Lisa is completely lucid and grounded in reality, her attorneys say she expresses deep remorse for what she did and the pain it has caused so many innocent people. But those moments of awareness come and go. And it is completely possible for us to feel some type of sympathy for Lisa Montgomery while also thinking what she did was heinous and that she deserves a punishment and she deserves never to leave prison. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. We could debate all day whether life in prison or the death penalty is appropriate. And that debate is getting really loud on the internet as Lisa's execution date nears. Feel free to join in. I'm anti-death penalty in all cases, so my debate is boring. It's just me saying no over and over again. But for those who are anti-death penalty in some cases and for it in others, there is a debate to be had here. But what I don't want us to do is fall into this binary thinking when it comes to people like Lisa Montgomery. Absolutely nothing Lisa did was okay, excusable, or justified. And nothing that happened to her as a child was either. Both of those thoughts coexist in my head just fine. And no amount of people telling me that I'm sympathizing with a murderer will change that. And people also don't need to tell me to save my sympathy for the victim because my capacity to feel compassion for people knows no bounds. I just spontaneously make more as needed. Whether people agree with me or not on any point on my podcast, the only thing I hope is that we can cut through some of this black and white thinking that dominates discussions about crime, criminals, and victims and start having some more productive conversations about culpability, aggravating circumstances, and mitigating circumstances. And what usually happens in these cases where there are a lot of issues to discuss like this While the talk of appeals and Lisa Montgomery's past and her mental illness and the debates over the death penalty, I do want to bring this back to focus on the people who have lost the most. I am heartbroken that Tori Jo lost her mother. She didn't even get to know her. As a parent myself, it actually hurts when I think about Bobby Jo losing her time with her daughter. She deserved that. 
She deserved to be here and watch her baby girl, who recently turned 16, grow up. Zeb called Tori Joe a miracle baby, which is the perfect descriptor for her after what she survived. She has grown up surrounded by her extended family, who have rightfully guarded her privacy in all of this. They wanted her to grow up with a typical small-town childhood, the same life Bobby Joe loved so much and wanted for her. 